0: Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. My guest today is Pasquale Romano, the CEO of ChargePoint. If you drive an EV, you're probably familiar with the ChargePoint app. It helps you find charging stations, check the status of your charging, even get notifications when it's done. But the company wasn't born yesterday. Pasquale actually joined it over a decade ago, although they only went public last year via a SPAC. While it's been a tough period for the shares lately, no one on Wall Street has a sell rating on this company. I'd like to talk to Pascual about the implications of the EV transition, both for his company and for society as a whole. So with that, Pascual, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having us. Well,
0: and and first of all, just again, give us sort of the brief sketch on what makes ChargePoint different from a lot of the other EV charging stocks, which have been all the talk, especially over the past six to twelve months, with uh, the stimulus coming from Washington and and all the rest of it. What what makes you guys different?
1: Yeah, well, well, I think you hit it in your introduction. Uh, you know, the first is that uh, we're uh, you know, we have fourteen years of experience doing this, uh, and just to give you one stat. Um, people have driven over three billion miles on energy dispensed on the charge point network and you know we're a single digit basically penetration into the uh, you know US uh, with respect to electric vehicles so uh, we've been a, a market leader for a very long time we're operating on uh, two continents uh, <laughs> both uh, North America and Europe broadly uh, you know kind of broadly distributed in both of those markets where uh, the only company that I know of regardless of size that's operating on both continents in uh, literally every vertical of, of EV charging so we're in commercial parking for both employees and customers uh, we're in uh, residential both home and you know apartments and condominiums uh, and and we're uh, <laughs> heavily moved into fleet now being very successful there in the early innings of uh, the fleet market. Uh, so we're super proud of that. There's um, At the last quarter, uh, we, uh, we updated our, our port count to 163,000 uh, on our network alone. We roam uh, with another uh, well over 200,000 ports. Uh, so all that's accessible on our mobile app as you pointed out in your introduction for drivers. And we sell everything. You know, we, uh, we, um, uh, we don't sell hardware if it's not attached to our network. Uh, but we do sell chargers of all varieties, uh, and then subscription services to keep those chargers on the ChargePoint network and avail themselves to all of those fun features through our mobile app and in-dash integrations with with car companies and and many other integrations in the ecosystem. And
0: is there a cost to customers for your app, and how do you guys make money?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. Uh, We do a great job fooling drivers in a good way. Uh, Everyone that Drives an EV that <laughs> downloads the ChargePoint mobile app to be able to use stations that are operating either under the primary brand of ChargePoint or the Ingredient brand. We have a lot of uh, a lot of customers that uh, want to have their own brand on the stations, so we uh, uh, we do we do enable us to be a subordinate brand uh, out there, especially in the fueling and convenience sector. But we don't own those stations, and we're not selling power and making money on power we affect that transaction for our customers so as a result everyone gets what they want with our business model that's the key is everyone gets what they what they want and need the business needs the flexibility to use it as either a direct revenue source but in many cases because energy is so cheap relative to gasoline they use it as an enticement to their retail establishment or whatever else the business is doing on the site. Uh, they might actually want to use it as an amenity, much like free Wi-Fi. You know, Wi-Fi has uh, become free now uh, everywhere in hotels and uh, it's, it's considered an essential service. I think charging is heading in that direction. Uh, and, and so we stay out of <clears throat> the energy economics because the energy itself, may not be what the customer wants to use as a revenue source. So us taxing that as our primary revenue, that's, that's, that's not going to work. It's just going to limit our customer base. So where we make money is we charge that business, not only for the chargers, but we charge that business an annual subscription fee that's fixed to keep that charger on the ChargePoint network and avail itself of all the cloud functions that we provide not only to drivers, but the management functions to enable customers to configure how charging works in their parking lot.
0: And so let me just kind of highlight something that you mentioned in passing, but I, I'm wondering if what you're saying is that, I mean, are you saying that you think I won't actually have to pay for EV charging in the future? I as the customer, because it's going to be so ubiquitous and a lot of the businesses are going to kind of eat that cost in order to attract me.
1: I think you pay for some. I don't think you pay for all of it, but let's frame this let's talk about how much it really costs to charge your EV for every single mile that you drive. The average American drives a little over 14,000 miles uh, a year for uh, each car. And that 14,000 miles uh, that's driven, um, you get, let's use the ratios of three miles per kilowatt hour. Think of a kilowatt hour as sort of the equivalent of a gallon of gasoline. Okay. So you got about 4,700 kilowatt hours a year per car. If you paid the national commercial average rate for power, that's going to be higher in some locations and lower in others. It's somewhere between five and 600 bucks a year to drive your vehicle. And utilities uh, are are contemplating and starting to roll out preferential overnight rates for your car as long as they can manage when the energy goes into your car through charging solutions like ours uh, uh for residential offerings so that, that number is only going down so your home rates are going to be even cheaper and your workplace where your car is parked most of the time when it's not at home assuming we return to work uh your workplace is going to give you power because it's about the cost of coffee literally it is literally about the cost of giving you coffee and they don't have any problem giving you coffee in fact if they if they wanted to um, the best thing that they um, uh, could do to save money uh, is to cut the cafeteria services and the yoga instructor because EV charging doesn't, make the, doesn't break the uh, priority list. And then let's talk about businesses. A lot of businesses want, want to um, get you in the store, right? And so because they want to get you in the store um, and, and energy is so cheap, they don't necessarily want you to pay for it either. A parking operator may say, hey, look, you know, I want you to park in my parking garage or my my parking lot versus the one across the street. So I'm either going to give you power at a highly subsidized rate or I'm going to make it free with your parking fee, because notice how much it costs to park your car in cities like New York, et cetera. Uh, charging your car is not going to be something that they're probably going to nickel and dime you for. Same with a hotel. You're going to go to a hotel, probably you already get free charging, uh, and that's likely to continue. So, in many cases, there isn't going to be any direct revenue, and it's all a result, all a result of how cheap it is to drive on electricity.
0: It's very interesting because even at the five hundred to six hundred dollar a year figure that you mentioned, you know, when I fill up, I drive a minivan because I have three little kids, and I drive to work and back every day. And when I'm filling that up, you know, every week or two right now, it's easily you know 40, 50 bucks, whatever. So I'm already probably spending a couple hundred dollars a month. Annualized, we're talking about well over one thousand, maybe two thousand dollars a year potentially on gas. So the EV would provide an immediate savings. Again, depending on size of the battery and and all of that, um, you know, the opportunity. My office has a whole fleet of chargers right now. Um, so it it's uh, you know it's funny to hear someone who's in the business of providing charging stations basically say yeah, you can kind of just have this for free. It's not going to cost you that much. I mean, wouldn't the ubiquity of stations mean I don't need a charge point app at some point?
1: Well, I've, you know, we're not monetizing the app directly. The app is there to help people find and then authenticate with the station. So one of the things when when, when something becomes highly subsidized, it's not going to be free everywhere, but but it will be free in many locations because it'll be viewed more as a marketing expense than as a, um, than as a revenue source. And gasoline, by the way, long haul gasoline is somewhat that way, right? A gas station doesn't make the lion's share of its profits by selling you gasoline, it makes the lion's share of its profits by a whole bunch of other stuff that they're trying to sell you on the site. Uh, so there's an analogy there, except that the absolute number is much lower. So it's about a fifth as expensive to drive on electricity and heading south because cars have some discretion as to when they take on the fuel. So what this means for us is it becomes more and more ubiquitous as we're already, you know, we've already dispensed over three billion miles worth of electricity on our network. And we're at, like I said, we're at like 1% penetration into the U S install base of vehicles. Right. So when it's everywhere and, and you need less of it, um, it, it, it'll be ubiquitous, but you'll still need that app to authenticate because people in exchange, in exchange businesses, in exchange for giving you highly subsidized or free power are going to want to know when you showed up in the parking lot because they may tie it in with their loyalty card programs, with their parking gate operations, et cetera. And they're going to want to make it easy. That's why we're integrating with so many, so many companies in the ecosystem so many we just just made an announcement with wex for example on the fleet side but there's a million others
0: well just to sort of think through the retail aspect of this at some future point when i drive an ev if i could pull up to target you know through your app either have it charging while i'm waiting for someone to drop groceries in my trunk and i mean Mm -hmm. i can see how that's in in an all-inclusive experience could you talk for a second about the fleet side? As I said, I was digging through analyst notes trying to find, you know, someone who's bearish on the company because, you know, it's been a kind of a wild ride for the equity, but given the market that we're in, you know, that that's emblematic. So the, you know, I guess I saw some concerns about, you know, okay, lower margins for the fleet business or this and that. I mean, tell me what you guys are up to on, on that and what you think kind of the the customer mix is going to look like over the next several years.
1: So the the economics of fleet. Uh, first of all, switching to electric for an operation that has a large cost structure associated with logistics is is just an amazing economic boost. Uh, So uh, most fleets that do the math on electric, uh, large and small, we're talking everything from a small pool for, uh, say, a Uh, a roofing contractor, electrical contracting firm, all the way up to big logistics delivery fleets. You do the math on electric because the platform life is longer and the maintenance profile is also better. So you get a fuel boost. I mean, they're all like, where do I sign? So when you also look at, even though it's much cheaper, the cost of the energy, the fuel essentially, that's going to the vehicles, it's dominating And what we sell is all the software necessary to make that mission critical. The fleet needs to be able to set their watch by having vehicles available to get whatever business done that fleet does. And so we're primarily a software value-added company that happens to make hardware that is jointly designed with that software to make sure you got high uptime, you've got um, um, you know, a, a level of redundancy uh, that's warranted for the for the fleet that's out there. Where am I going with this? They're willing to pay for that. You, we we have to give them a good value. They're willing to pay for that because that enables them to switch to such a low cost fuel that is outsized in in in, in, the, in the liquid fuel world in the fossil fuel world. it's it's, it's a really expensive line item in their cost of goods. And so if they can switch to electricity, they have to be able to count on it. They're getting so much of a savings there, but it's still dominating the equation. And I'm not saying they're price insensitive to what we're doing, but they would much rather be buying software products and software defined hardware products that they can set their watch by. And right now, they need a trusted partner that understands electrification. They're, they're completely conversant in the fossil fuel world. The electric fuel world is new to them. And so they're looking to companies like us to be partners. And we think that that's gonna support a healthy margin structure uh, for, for that segment.
0: And how did you become, I mean, are you personally a specialist in kind of electricity? I know you have a, a Harvard background. I think I saw an, an MIT master's in there somewhere. Um, you know what was it that kind of propelled and motivated you to get involved with this space and this company over a decade ago?
1: Um, you know, I'm not an energy uh, person by a long resume, but I'm an I'm an engineer and a product person um, through and through. I am mean, just intellectually curious. I'm much more of an engineering generalist. Um, my degrees in my undergraduate degrees. Mentioned is from Harvard, but it's in computer computer science. Graduate, my graduate degree from MIT is in uh, signal processing, uh, digital signal processing, and I worked on, uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, the uh, standards working groups that were trying to come up with the first version of you know how you get an MP3. Yeah, there was an MP1, and I worked on MP1 before it was MP1. Uh, with labs all over the world uh, trying to figure out how to make digital video work we're sitting here on a zoom and we're, we're just forgetting that you know way back in 1989 this was not possible this was considered you know a moonshot uh, and then I, I, I like new markets so what I did was I I, I always always the only consistency in my jobs have been I've jumped in before a market was developed and dwelled for a very long time because I enjoy that. Uh, so as, as if I'm going to, I don't know if this is going to uh, uh, make people think I'm crazy or not. I've never taken a break since grad school. So I've never taken as much as a week off in between jobs, literally oh my gosh. from one to the next. I've And I've only had four. This is my fourth. <laughs> uh, I'm not a kid. So um, you know, I've been, been at this for over 32 years. So. So, uh, you know, my dwell time per job uh, is a very long time because it takes a very long time to develop a market. I've been at ChargePoint, it'll be 11 years here in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're just getting started. I and mean, we're just getting started. We're, you know, 1% penetration, right?
0: So, <laughs> do you like then, well, it's funny because in some ways I go, well, you're kind of reaching your typical tenure, you know, here and maybe, maybe now that EVs have arrived on the scene, you feel like it's project complete, but then it looks like to you, you guys are just at the very beginning of this journey still.
1: Yeah, well, what, what, you know, not just myself, but I think our, our board, our employees want to do with, with ChargePoint is to, is to keep growing it. There's a lot of adjacencies to charging, you know, we're in, we're in, uh, you know, the fleet space gives us is the newest example of we took our technology our platforms uh, from the commercial uh, charging space you know helping businesses serve people like us uh, as their employees or customers Well, we took that into fleet uh, there's incredible platform leverage there but there's continued platform leverage into other areas and I think if you keep um, you've got to keep pouring stuff in the top of the funnel of a company in a measure in a measured way you could you could blow it apart by introducing too much chaos too too early, but if it, you know our goal here at ChargePoint is not to just be in primary charging technology forever. It's to continue to add to that mix in a thoughtful way that leverages what we're doing, leverages our our sales force and the relationships that it forms with customers and our channel partners, etc. So you'll probably see us in the long term uh, expand you know you know into adjacencies and keep adding to the mix. And, and that's what keeps it fun. We're, you know, this is one of these things where it's once in a lifetime, because what company, give me a space, forget about ChargePoint, give me a space that you can think of that can grow at the rates we're growing at for 20 years. And because we're, I mean, look at the penetration rate is, as, as I've said many times in a lot of these forms before, there's about 280 million cars on just the U.S. roads. Europe's a little bit bigger, actually, but call it about the same size. And it's a big world out there beyond even those two continents. Let's just take the U.S. market at 280 million cars. Um, if you wanted to, uh, if 100% of the cars tomorrow were electric, it's a 20-year change-out change out cycle. It, meaning if you sold 100% starting tomorrow.
0: Right, like if in the year year 2022, every single new car sold was an EV, you think it would still take 20 years to replace the existing fleet?
1: Yeah, it could go go a little bit faster, but not much. And here's why. Uh, Here's why it could go faster. In the outer years, you, you, you get an incredible residual value squeeze on fossil fuel vehicles. Cars last a while. They have multiple owners. There's a healthy used market out there at vehicles. Uh, it's an expensive proposition for most people to own a car. So as a result, as the residual value drops, it entices consumers to get out of their gas car earlier because they're worried that it's not going to be worth as much with each passing day. So in the outer years, call it a decade, you know, somewhere between, you know, let's call it around 10 years from now when you've got, you know, you're, you're a ways into the transition. There's no lease market for, for a fossil fuel car. There's no lease market because the residual value is going to be called into question. So there is right there, it's going to destroy the financing universe around vehicles, not to mention consumer confidence. So it could, you could get early retirement happening earlier, uh, and, it, and it could push it faster than 20 years. Is it going to be 10 years? No, it can't be. Uh, just because you're not going to have the production capacity. Auto OEMs are not going to bring the production capacity online to swallow a rapid transition bubble, only to be left stuck with unrealizable capex and, and production capacity in the long term. There's only so much you can do in the short term, and there's only so much early retirement you can entice with the existing vehicles. Fleet will go faster because you get higher utilization of the vehicle and you've got a more concentrated buying universe, you've got business buyers, fleet will go faster than 20 years. But passenger cars probably take about 20 years. So what that means is we have as a company as an industry, oh my god, this isn't oh my god, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to be part of something that's just like being in the in the middle of a good kind of tornado, right? Mm -hmm. No one at ChargePoint wants to miss that. So, so that's, and then, you know, your comments on stock price, that's how we look at it. Yeah. That, that's, I, this is the tornado we're in the middle of.
0: I have, I have a couple of, of different questions for you. Since you mentioned that one, let me ask this one first. Um, any regrets about going public via SPAC? Because we've seen sort of a shakeout in um, a lot of those names. Or what would you say are some of the... Are there any regrets that you have about the the sort of timeline of going public, or maybe having done it a different way, or any anything that you would sort of add there?
1: Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, the uh, you know I think about you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, I would not question the timing um, because the market was ready uh, because of all of the. Uh, I think awareness being raised around the EV transition and the question marks being removed as to what the next generation drivetrain technology was going to be for all of us. Uh, so I think the timing was right because we looked at it as shifting to a public market capital raise model for that initial public offering. We put you know half a billion or so on the balance sheet uh, in that transition in that transaction, and then another. 100 and some odd, million, low, low, I think it was around 110, 120 um, on the balance sheet. In addition, uh, when the SPAC warrants um, were, uh, <coughs> were cleared out. So, um, you know, call it 600 million or so on the balance sheet in that transaction. That's a lot of money because uh, we had raised to date as a private company about 640 million. So it's a very well capitalized company. And it has all the technology and market to show for it. And looking back, I wouldn't have changed the timing. Now, looking back, I, I think we get lumped into the category of some companies that I think have used the, the SPAC process possibly right. to go a little, how should we say, a, a little light on the maturity side uh, with respect <laughs> to readiness. And so what happens is you get somewhat lumped into that category. I think we're, I think we're frankly clearing that out. We've had a good um, uh, first, we're not quite a year public will be there, March one. Uh, but we've had a track record of beaten and raise uh, uh, predictability, good predictability on our guidance. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think the market will differentiate us over time. It already has, uh, you know, our valuation is uh, and our multiple is still uh, quite a bit better than a lot of other folks in the space. Um, and, but with that said, I think we still get tainted a bit with the SPAC overhang, and I think we're working ourselves out of that. Um, so that's the only question. I think um, the process otherwise has been, has been fine. Um, it, was no, it was designed as a process to get companies that uh, needed to have a little bit more uh, uh, you know, forward guidance in, in, in their conversations with the capital raise process in the IPO Uh, to be able to do that. Now the SEC is looking at that as they should um, and and asking questions about, you know, whether that's an appropriate, uh, you know, whether that there's appropriate accountability there. Um, You know, we take it very seriously. Um, uh, But we needed to have that conversation with investors because the market's so early. It's just so early, but you need the capital to scale, Kelly. You know, I mean, look at what's in front of us, right? If you got massive growth rates for years, like year after year after year, assuming we execute, we can hold on to our market share, which I'm pretty confident we can. Um, look at what the, ca- the capital, you know, you, you've got to be a public company. How do you, uh, we've done two acquisitions, hard to do as a private company, possible, but hard, right? So things like that, you've got to be public in a market.
0: Very, company. very interesting. My final question is more of a societal one, and I, I'm not really expecting you to have the answer, but what's going to happen to all the gas stations?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I, I, uh, I, I get misquoted on this one all the time, and I'm, I'm glad we're in a podcast because, <laughs> you know, the, two, the, the, two, the, the two-word soundbite is always dangerous on this one. Uh, the world has, has, over the last 100 years, figured out where people like us want to go when we're on a long trip, to stop, to buy some food, some snacks, bottled water, let the kids walk around. You have three kids, and I can picture that in the minivan on the way to, you know, vacation. You, you've, you know, we've all been there, right? Uh, and, and uh, those locations are good ones. They'll continue to serve uh, people driving beyond their battery range. There's a little bit of need for a round town fast charge uh, for when you just, you know, you, you have an unplanned longer trip and you need to top off real quick. But there isn't much need for that. Um, and so, you know, the metro area gas station that's serving local driving, well, your primary fuel is moved to home and work. That's where you're getting in around town. That's where your primary fuel's coming in. And it's because you don't have an EPA regulated fuel that you can't put a tank of in your house. You got electricity in your house. You got electricity at your apartment, you got electricity at work. Your car's parked 94% of the time. So you're going to take on fuel there. So what it says is that the fuel market from a revenue perspective has gotten a lot, is, is a lot smaller, driving the same miles. It's a lot smaller when you're on electricity. And then it's more diffuse where you can take on fuel that isn't you know kind of like a, a, a gas station site where it's highly concentrated. So it says most gas stations that are serving local area markets have to transform themselves and only a few will make it into urban charging depots to serve uh, taxi or TNC fleets, you know, Uber, the Uber's and lifts of the world, et cetera, because those folks are, are sort of more like a fleet and that they need fast charging to keep that asset continuing to circulate. That's not a lot. That's n- not a lot relative to how many gas stations are out there trying to fill up your car and I haven't driven a gas car in a while with my old cars. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so a lot of them have to rethink. But the ones that are positioned for long haul driving, it's better for them because you dwell longer. Even with the fastest fast charge, you're going to dwell a little longer and you're more likely to buy something when you do that. So it's a boon for the ones that are in the locations that are serving you when you're driving beyond between metro areas you know beyond your battery range it's a huge it, it's benefit because they like it that you're dwelling longer you're likely to buy other stuff the ones that are serving you going to work and you're daily driving eh,
0: they gotta rethink they gotta rethink it's very very interesting very very interesting Oh, well, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I think we'll leave it there with that sense of this is going to be a decade in which a lot of things are going to happen really quickly. And um, I guess my last question is, what EV do you drive?
1: Uh, uh, so I haven't driven a gas car uh, in over a decade. Uh And in fact, I had my first EV on order before I joined ChargePoint. So I was already, I was already to the direction. It's not because I work here. So right now I uh, we have, we have two cars in my, in my family and they're both electric. We have a Tesla Model Y uh, and we have a Volvo Polestar 2, the Polestar uh, sub-brand under, under the Volvo umbrella. It's a very nice car. Uh, So we have uh, one, each of those. And um, my wife and I, uh, you know, you know, trade off, you know, depending the, on the cargo capacity needs of the day (laughs) for each of us.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think I saw that charge point has a pole star, uh, relationship. I think that you guys have been very busy, um, with all the the new brands and it'll be fun to watch and see where you go from here. And I've learned a lot. So Pasquale, thank you so much for your time. It's really been great. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Kelly. It's been great being here. All right,
0: everybody. Thanks for listening and be sure to follow the exchange podcast, And catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.
1: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals.